Well, today is uh, the last Sunday of November. Next week, Lord willing, we'll walk in here and uh, the church will be decorated. Advent will begin. And the Christmas season at EPC will be in full celebration. Now, I came across a video this week of kids telling the Christmas story that I, I would like to share with you this morning. Who was the Virgin Mary? She, she was God's, I mean, she was Jesus' aunt. His aunt, and uh, who was his cousin? Mike. Who was Joseph? Joseph, he was, um, he, he got married to Mary, but they got, like, they didn't really, like, want to be together, so then they, um, she started to go with God. Oh, inside? Uh-huh. Did Joseph get mad? Yeah. Who was Joseph? Joseph is, uh, Jesus' stepdad. They didn't have a home, so they had to ride a camel. What did the Virgin Mary do on the first Christmas? Um, she left out cookies for Santa. Did Santa love Mary's cookies? Uh-huh. What kind of cookies were they? Gingerbread. What did Jesus do when he grew up? He uh, went to heaven. What did he do before that? God bless you. So, on the one hand... What we just watched is humorous, while on the other hand, it's actually sad and concerning. I mean, don't you wish every child and every person could know the reality of the biblical Christmas story? Now, we're going to notice throughout the Christmas season that there are varying perspectives in our culture on the meaning of Christmas, what Christmas is about. And one of the realities of the Christmas season for those of us who are followers of Jesus is going to be the frustration of seeing our culture shift away from understanding and recognizing biblical truth. And the result of that is that some of us are going to get frustrated when people do certain things. Like if someone says, happy holidays instead of Merry Christmas. Or when they refer to it as the holiday tree or instead of the Christmas tree. Or when schools send out the notice that they're celebrating the winter break rather than the Christmas break. That tends to really poke some followers of Jesus in, well, in a really, you know, inspiring and motivating way. And so our, our reaction in these times is to often launch into our Jesus is the reason for the season campaign or defense. But I wonder sometimes if we who are followers of Jesus really grasp the significance of that slogan ourselves. I want to suggest this morning that that slogan is more than a slogan. It's more than a cliche. It's more than a badge that we wear. It's more than a bumper sticker on our car. It's more than a sign that we hang on our home. Without Jesus, the Christmas message lacks significance. It lacks purpose. It lacks value. 
And so for this reason, I believe it's critically important for all of us as followers of Jesus to understand why Jesus is the reason for the season. Today I've chosen the topic, the Christmas reason, because as followers of Jesus, we need to be reminded of who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, and what Jesus will do in the future if we are truly going to grasp the significance of Jesus being the reason for the season. Now, I've picked a very common um, Christmas text to share with you this morning from Revelation chapter 1. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Now, this passage is found in what we would call the prologue or the introduction to the book of Revelations. And sometimes when we're, whether it's we're reading a book or we're reading a part of the Bible, we, we tend to sometimes pass over these sections quickly because we want to get to the good stuff. Right? You know, we want to get right into the meat of it. And so we, we miss sometimes some really important things that are put there for a really important reason in our haste to get to what we think is the good stuff. Now, this scripture is really important, I believe, because it reminds us of why Jesus is the reason for the season. Now, if you have your Bible, you can open it up and, and you know, my, you, some of you may not even notice this, but this is not my typical preaching style of what I'm going to do this morning. It's, it's you know, it's not a, a heretic preaching style, but it's not one that I typically follow. But today what I want us to do is I want us to walk through these few verses and I want us to highlight some timeless truths that are found here. You know, when I look at the book of Acts and I look at uh, the writings in the New Testament and I see sermons that are recorded, sermons in the New Testament that we can read that were given in the early church were all about Jesus, who he is, what he did, and what he was going to do. And so what we're going to do this morning is a little bit of that. So the first thing we see here is that Jesus is God. And it answers that aspect for us of who he is. The author of the book of Revelation identifies himself as John. And he's writing what has been shown to him by God. And so the book of Revelation 
is unique in that it falls into three categories of biblical literature. The first is it's apocalyptic literature. Now, I could do a whole morning's talk on what that is, but just in a nutshell, just to let you know, it's writing that's done with visions and symbolism and images. And in fact, when it was written, it was not read, meant to be read alone in your private devotions, but it was meant to be read publicly and even acted out because it's just so rich in imagery and beauty and, and all of these things. And so, from that sense, it's apocalyptic literature. And of course, the underwriting theme of apocalyptic literature is always this. Things are really bad, but in the end, there's victory. That's, that's apocalyptic literature. So, the book of Revelation falls within that context. It's also prophetic literature in the sense that there are some things in here that relate to the future of what's going to happen. And it's also a letter. It's a letter that John is writing is written by someone, it's written to someone. And so John begins the book of Revelation in the style of letter writing in his day, which included three common elements. He identifies the sender, John. He identifies the recipients, seven churches in Asia. And he provides a greeting. He says, grace and peace be to you. These things were always standard elements when letters were written in John's time. Now, John identifies his audience as the seven churches in the province of Asia. It's important for us to understand that these are seven literal historical churches that existed in Asia at this time. These are not symbolic churches. They are real churches in real locations with real people and real pastors and real issues. It's also important to understand that the number seven is really significant in the book of Revelation, for it is a symbol of completeness or wholeness. And so, therefore, when we read the book of Revelation, we should understand that he's not just addressing these seven specific churches, but really the message to these churches are messages for all the churches in Asia. In fact, the application of this letter is for churches in all places at all time, even to evangel on this last Sunday of November in 2018. Now, John's greeting of grace and peace is significant. These are not just filler words because he's writing to an audience and many of them have been suffering intense persecution because they are witnesses of Jesus. No other reason. They are witnesses of Jesus and because of that, they have been severely persecuted. And so, it's God's grace through Jesus that's going to enable them to persevere in the midst of their persecution, and it's His peace that's going to give them inner peace in the midst of their outer turmoil. Now, God the Father here is identified as Him who is and who was and who is to come. And this reference to God amongst Jewish people was understood as a paraphrase when referring to Yahweh. Because anytime in the Old Testament scriptures, when Yahweh is referred to, he's always the God of the fathers, the God of the future promise, and the God of right now. And so there's no point in time which God does not exist. He is present, he is past, and he is future. The Holy Spirit is identified here as the seven spirits before the throne. Seven meaning completeness, wholeness, perfection. 
And so that's why this term is used in apocalyptic literature for the Holy Spirit. It's acknowledging the Spirit's perfect work. The Spirit's position is before the throne where God the Father sits sovereign over all creation. And then Jesus is identified here with three references. First, he's called the faithful witness. The theme of witness is really significant in the book of Revelation, and it demonstrates a link between being a witness and persecution and then death. Jesus came to bear witness of God. He was severely persecuted because of it to the point that led to his death. Jesus was the faithful witness. Why? Because he was loyal to the point of death. And so here John is writing to an audience of people who are going through great persecution for one reason and one reason only. They have been witnesses of Jesus Christ. And so he is encouraging them and saying, listen, in the midst of your hostile environment, I want to remind you of an example of one who is the faithful witness, Jesus Christ, the one who was faithful to the point of death. Secondly, he says, Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. Yes, Jesus' faithful witness led him to the point of death at the hands of his accusers, but he's no longer dead. And he's no longer dead because God has raised him from the dead. And so as the firstborn from the dead, Jesus is sovereign over death. And he has made a way for believers to also experience the resurrection. Not just those that John is writing to, but all of us in this place today, because of Jesus, have a hope of the resurrection. Now, his followers may face persecution to the point of death, but they can have hope because Jesus has authority even over death. And then third, John writes, Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth. Now, much of the conflict that you'll see in the book of Revelation is between Jesus and the earthly rulers. The followers of Jesus are experiencing great persecution at the hands of these earthly rulers because of their witness. Now, it may appear to them that they're fighting a losing battle, but they are given the assurance by John that Jesus is the supreme ruler of the kings of the earth. In the book of Revelation, the reign of Jesus is understood to extend over the kings of the earth. And so what we see in this section, when you look at it closely, why I've identified these three is because what John is showing us here is a picture of the Trinity. He's showing us in the opening the Trinity and He's identifying God as the one, the Father who is and was and is to come, the Spirit as the complete and perfect Spirit of God, and Jesus, the faithful witness, firstborn from the dead and ruler over the king of the earth. Why is he putting this here? Why is he placing this at the very beginning in the opening prologue of the letter that he's writing? Well, I believe it's very simple. He's showing us here that Jesus is God. Jesus is God. Jesus is God before he took on human flesh. Jesus is God while he was here taking on human flesh. And Jesus is God since taking on human flesh and going back to the Father. He is Emmanuel. Emmanuel literally means he is God with us. Jesus is God 
period. Now that's important because it's concerning that many followers of Jesus in our time may not have a clear understanding of the deity of Jesus, that Jesus is God. And that is critically important to everything we believe. Just last week, I was reading from thestateoftheology.com. They just released a the responses of a survey that was recently conducted. It was conducted in the U.S., but I think in fairness that the implications of this are not confined to the U.S. Now, just for the sake of clarity, I'm going to use the word evangelical, and I'm going to define what that is. We use that word a lot, that this is an evangelical church, or I'm an evangelical. And evangelical is defined as a person, or a church, or an organization that is committed to the Christian gospel message that Jesus is the Savior of humanity. Now, because we believe that, we would consider that, that we would be evangelicals. We preach the need to accept Jesus as Lord and Savior, that He is the only hope of salvation, that His death on the cross provided it, and we can come to Him in repentance, and we are saved, right? We believe that. That's what an evangelical is. 78% of evangelicals surveyed agreed with this statement on the screen. 78% of evangelicals. Jesus is the first and greatest created being of God. 78% not of churchgoers, not of religious people, of evangelicals. Folks, may I remind us this morning... Jesus wasn't created by God. Jesus is God. Maybe we just need to put a little bit more time and energy into some things more than other things within the evangelical world. Just putting that out there. Jesus is God. Now, I want to admit to you, I I don't fully grasp the mystery of the Trinity. And if you've mastered it, boy, I could buy me coffee. I'll buy you the coffee and explain it to me. I mean, I understand that H2O can come in the form of a solid, which is ice, and steam, which is gas, and liquid, which is water. I mean, you know, I get that. I know the egg has the shell and the yolk and the white, but you know what? It doesn't even come close to helping me understand the mystery of the Trinity. Anybody else here like that? I don't get it. And in fact, I don't think I'm going to get it until someday I'm actually physically in the presence of the Trinity in eternity. I don't get it. It's a mystery. We accept it by faith. But it's critically important to understand that maybe we don't get it all, but it's important to understand Jesus is God. Jesus, who is God, came in human form. Jesus, who is God, died on the cross for our sins. Jesus, who is God, rose victorious over the grave. And Jesus, who is God, is coming back again. He's not just an historical figure. He's not just a good man. He's not just a prophet of God amongst all the other prophets of God. The essence 
of the gospel message is that Jesus is God. Jesus is the reason for the season because he's God. And if he's not God, then Christmas lacks significance, purpose, and value. Secondly, isn't this fun? Jesus is our Savior. This responds to what he did. The next section of our passage, if you look closely at it, is what we would call a doxology. Now, a doxology, really in simple terms, is just a worship moment. We had doxology here this morning. We had worship moments. This is a worship moment. There's a lot of people who like to dig a lot of things out of the book of Revelation. You know what I think the book of Revelation teaches us most? is about worship. Is worship. And I think if we miss that, we've missed one of the significant messages. Just putting that out there. It's a doxology, a worship moment, the first of many. The usual scriptural order that we read and we hear, right, is when, we, when the Trinity is referenced, we hear, you know, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Well, in this previous greeting, the order for the members of the Trinity is God the Father, God the Spirit, then God the Son. I don't know if John got mixed up when he's writing. What's going on here? And plus, we always say who was and is and is to come. But no, John says who is and was and is to come. And those are significant orders. He's doing it for a purpose. And so, yes, it seems like it's a little out of order. It may seem unusual, but it's perfectly appropriate in light of this worship moment that's about to take place in the prologue. Can you believe it? We're not even up to verse 6, only at 6 or 7 right now, and already there's a worship moment. Since Jesus is the focus of the worship moment, it makes sense for John to reference Jesus just prior to this worship moment. And that's what he's doing. And there are three parts of this worship which focuses on the redemptive work of Jesus, that he's our Savior, what he did. The first thing John tells us, and of course John is telling us all of this because God is giving him this vision. First is, he is the one who loves us. I'm so glad that was first. I'm so glad that was first. Folks, I'm just going to tell you, if the church of Jesus Christ could get that that's first, it would revolutionize this world. He's the one who loves us. Now, this love is to be understood in both the past and present tense. In the present, Jesus is loving us. And in the past, he revealed his love to us through his atoning death. John reminds us that the love of Jesus shown on the cross at that one moment in history is continuous, is eternal, and is a reality for us even in this moment today. Is love. The one who loved us. Second, he's the one who has freed us from our sins by his blood. Jesus expressed his love for us by redeeming us from the, our sins through his death. We're now released from our bondage, or we can be. 
We're released from the power and the penalty of sin. How? By identifying by faith with Jesus' sacrificial death, by accepting him as our Lord and Savior. The power of Jesus' blood to destroy sin and make us clean is a recurrent theme found throughout the book of Revelation. And then the third thing he says, he has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. John has previously established that Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth. As the ruler of the kings of the earth, he thus wears the title king of kings. And since he is the king of kings, he has made his followers a kingdom of followers who rule with him. As priests, we have direct access to God and we have the privilege of serving him in his kingdom. The praise that is given here is directed towards Jesus who deserves all praise. Why? Because he is our savior. He's our savior. And the glory and honor offered to Jesus in this first worship episode is eternal worship because it's accompanied by the phrase, yes, we are saying these things, but it's forever and forever. Unlimited praise is offered to one of unlimited worthiness. This worship moment then concludes with an appropriate amen. Sometimes we think amen just means the period at the end of the prayer. But in Scripture, the word amen is a scriptural way of declaring, so shall it be. In Matthew 2.11, where the Magi entered the house where Jesus and Mary were, they immediately bowed down and they worshipped him and they offered to him their extravagant gifts. In Luke 2.11, the heavenly messengers appeared to the shepherds on the hills outside of Bethlehem, and they make an announcement to these lowly shepherds. Today in the town of David, a baby has been born? No. A Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. Christ means the anointed one. Christ means the Messiah. He is the Messiah, God himself. And when these same shepherds went into Bethlehem and they found the Savior in that manger, it says they left praising and glorifying God. Christmas is a worship celebration of the Savior, the one who saves. Jesus was born to be our Savior. He was born to die. He gave himself for us because he loved us, and his love is equal for everyone. We got to get that through our heads. His love is equal for everyone. In this Christmas season, we're reminded of the love of Jesus for every single person, despite who they are. Despite what they believe, even if it's different than we believe. Despite how they live, even if it's different than we live or we think they should live. They are loved by a Savior who gave himself for them to set them free because he loves them. They are loved by a Savior who has invited them. 
to come and reign with him. Folks, Jesus is the reason for the season because his love compelled him to make the ultimate of sacrifice so he could become the savior of broken humanity. Every single person. The unfathomable love of the Savior draws us to worship Him. We don't worship because the volume is just right. We don't worship because the melody touches us in an emotional way. We don't, we don't worship because we like the way the words are. We don't worship because we like the worship leader. We worship because there is a love that has been demonstrated to us from Jesus that draws us. And we can't help ourselves but live the book of Revelation in every moment we gather of throwing ourselves before him and declaring who he is and what he has done and what he's yet to do. That's worship. <laughs> to miss that is to miss the reason for the season. Finally, Jesus is the coming king. It answers what he will do. The final two verses of our text bring excitement and anticipation with the inclusion of two prophetic words which bring hope to believers who are burdened under oppression and persecution. The first prophetic word places emphasis on the coming of Jesus, which is one of the primary focuses of the book of Revelation. The prophetic word begins with the word Look, an emphatic look, which not only calls the hearer to pay attention, to listen carefully, but also stresses the certainty on the statement that is about to be made. Regardless of how things appear, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of all the kings of the earth will come in the clouds, it says. It is certain. Look, it is certain. And he says, when he comes, every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. He will reveal himself to everyone, even those who oppose God and his people. Now, those who pierced him are not limited to those who literally carried out the crucifixion. But all of fallen humanity who are guilty of rejecting him and the saving work of the cross. All of us without Jesus are his, are his crucifiers. We all participated in that by our sin. But not only will they see him, it says they will mourn because of him. Those who have opposed Jesus and his church will become aware in that moment of the implications of their actions and will mourn their lost opportunity. They will mourn their opposition to Jesus. The first prophecy ends with the emphatic affirmation that what was just said will happen. So shall it be, amen. What has been declared here will happen. Jesus will come again. Now this section concludes with a second prophetic word 
The first one centered on the certainty that Jesus was coming. The second prophetic utterance begins with the words, I am. And the words I am are familiar words to all those who are reading this prophecy, this apocalyptic literature, this letter that will be circulated through the churches. These words were often spoken by Jesus as he identified with Yahweh, that he was God. I am. And this verse incorporates, this one little verse, three of the four most important designations of God in the book of Revelation. The Alpha and the Omega, the one who is, who was, and is to come, and the Lord God Almighty. The Alpha and Omega are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. The designation to the Lord God declares This designation to him declares that he's the first word in creation and the last word in the new creation. He is the one who is, who was, and is to come. He's the beginning of history. He's the end of history. And he's everything in between. He's the Lord God Almighty. This designation is used seven times in the book of Revelation to indicate that he has supreme control and authority over everything. He is the all-powerful one. Nothing exists outside of him. And he is in control of this world. Now, this prophetic word is a fitting encouragement that ensures his people of the eternal power and abiding sovereignty in the midst of persecution and tribulation all around our world. Folks, we can't celebrate the first advent. We can't celebrate the first coming of Jesus without celebrating the second advent, the second coming of Jesus, because the two are connected. They're connected. Christmas is not just about nostalgically looking back and celebrating the birth of Jesus. It's about celebrating the king who came and the king who is coming again. That's Christmas. If Jesus is truly the reason for the season for us, then we will live our lives in a way that demonstrates in anticipation that he will return just as he said he would. As Jesus is ascending up to heaven in Acts chapter 1, and the heavenly messengers are there, and all of the followers of Jesus are standing and watching him go, they speak to them and they say, why are you standing there looking into the sky? What are you doing? This same Jesus, who's been taken from you up to heaven, will come back in the same way that you've seen him go. He's coming back. Hebrews 9.28 says, So Christ was offered as a sacrifice one time to take away the sins of many people. And he will come a second time. But this time not to offer himself for sin. He's already done that. But to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Waiting for him. Jesus is the reason for the season Because he's promised to come again and establish God's kingdom in its fullness. Folks, Jesus will return. And Christmas reminds us of this truth. I'm going to invite our worship team to come back. Folks, Jesus is the reason for the season because he's God 
And if he's not God, then Christmas lacks significance and purpose and value. Jesus is the reason for the season because his love compelled him to make the ultimate sacrifice so he could become the savior of broken humanity, every single person. And Jesus is the reason for the season because he's promised to come again and establish God's kingdom in its fullness. And as followers of Jesus, we need to be reminded of who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, and what Jesus will do in the future if we're truly going to grasp the significance of Jesus being the reason for the season. I'm going to invite you to stand with me this morning. And I believe it's very important in the day and age that we live in when things seem to be so twisted and taken out of context and people don't understand, when culture seems to want to pull away from anything that's, that's anchored in the things of God, that us as followers of Jesus have to know that we know that we know who Jesus is, what he's done and what he's going to do. Because if we miss that, we're going to fill that with a lot of stuff that doesn't have any significance or value. And we're not going to have an impact in this world because the most effective impact that we can have on this world is helping people come to understand who Jesus is, what he has done for them, and what he's going to do. It's critical. And if we miss it, then all of it is just pointless. I'm going to invite our prayer team to come this morning. I want to tell you, one of the struggles of just preaching a Jesus message is the fear that we've heard it so many times that, we're, that the people in front of you are going to think, yeah, blah, blah, blah. I've heard that a thousand times. Right? Haven't we? A thousand times we've heard it. A thousand times, ten thousand, we've heard it. But that's not the point. The point is, has the truth of it so captured your heart and captured your life that you live different and you act different and you talk different and you prioritize different because he is the center of everything. That's the point. I'm going to invite our prayer team to come. We want to pray with you this morning. You may be here. And I don't, I don't know what the needs are and the burdens that you're carrying this morning. But we want to pray with you. We want to encourage you. We want to lift you up this morning. But maybe you're here this morning and you know what? Maybe you've never come to that moment where you recognize who he is and what he's done and what he wants to do in you and, and you've not made that place for him this morning. He's not the reason for you. Well, maybe today you feel that that's a decision you want to make to allow him to radically change your life. Then we want to pray with you about that this morning. As the worship team leads us, at the very least this morning, Ask the Holy Spirit to show you what might have been 
a part of this service this morning that should resonate with you and in your own life because that's between you and God.